0: Well, good morning, Northland. It's good good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel. That actually comes after 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 3. No, there's not a 3 Samuel. <laughs> so, so we're in our series, Transitions, where we're going to actually make a, a, a slight change this morning from what we've been doing in this series, because what we've been doing in this series is helping us to process the changes, thus transitions, helping us to process the various transitions that we encounter, that we go through. This morning, I'm going to be talking about how to prevent bad transitions. So, So I'm going to be talking about how do we create these guardrails that would prevent bad transitions from even happening. And so as I was thinking about this whole idea of prevention, I was thinking about a game that I have played with my kids growing up on uh, the Nintendo or the Nintendo Switch or the Wii or whatever it's called, but it's called Super Mario Kart. Anybody ever heard of that game, Super Mario Kart? Now, I, I don't like really that game anymore at all, and the reason why I don't like that game is because my children, this was years ago, they started to beat me in this game, and if you know anything about me, I'm highly competitive, and so when I lose to my children, that does something to my ego, and it also does something to my parenting, at least in a sanctification manner, they they start talking smack when they're beating me dude, oh my gosh, you came in like six plays. I'm, I'm, I'm waxing you. And I'm like, do you want me to smack you? Like, Is that what you want me to do? And so I remember a couple of months ago, our youngest, Luke, he was playing on, on his Switch, Super Mario Kart. And he's like, dad, do you want to play? And I'm like, listen, on, on one hand, I'm wrestling. I'm, I'm struggling with it because on one hand, I'm like, yeah, buddy, I really want to invest this time in, in playing with you, but I don't want you to beat me and I want you to talk smack. But so I end up playing, and in, if you've ever played that game, there are, are tracks or courses that you can choose from. I do not like the courses that have no guardrails. So, they're, so they're, they're like there's this one track, like there's no guardrails on on this track. And so, whenever I'm making that turn, I always I always do it wrong, and I fall off the track. And then that's when it takes forever for the computer to reset your little guy and put him back on the track. And then by the time he puts you on the track, they've already made a loop. And so that's why I like my, my son beats me all the time because he doesn't fall off he doesn't fall off the track. But then there are other tracks that they don't have. They actually have guardrails, like this one. And so you can hit the guardrail and you pop right back onto the track and you go on your merry little way. I like those tracks. I, I at least have an opportunity to at least get close to winning when I play on those tracks. And you say, Joshua, what is that whole point? You need guardrails in your life. And you say, well, what's a guardrail? Ra- ra- and I'm glad that you asked. Let me give you a definition of a guardrail. Guardrails are protective measures put in safety zones to prevent you from hurting Yourself or someone else. So they're, they're there. They're protective measures. They put in safety zones to prevent you from hurting yourself or someone else. If you think about it, some of your biggest regrets in life probably could have been prevented if you would have had some guardrails in your life. Now, where do we need guardrails? Well, I I think there are a couple of places that we need them. Personally, we need some guardrails in our life to prevent us from making a huge mistake, maybe giving in to peer pressure, maybe becoming addicted to a substance, uh, making poor business decisions. Uh, What about our marriage? We need some guardrails to protect our marriage, maybe financial guardrails to protect our finances. And uh, there, there are other areas where we possibly need guardrails. Now, the question is, all right, so, so if we need them, does that mean everybody needs them? Yes. So tell your neighbor, you need guardrails. You need guardrails. Now, there might be some of you sitting out there, well, you just don't know me, Josh. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty perfect guy. No, you're not. Not at all. Here, Proverbs says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So you out there going, Man, you know, Josh, Pastor Josh, I don't need no guardrails. That's prideful. And the Bible says pride comes before the fall. And then you might, you know, kind of be be sitting out there and you're you're really kind of thinking through this. And I just want you to understand this. You, you, You need to remember that you are and I am, we are all prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it guess like why I love that song, Come Thy Fount, because it expresses this notion that every single one of us, regardless of how godly you think you are, you are prone to wonder. Are, are you really? Yeah, because in this passage in 2 Samuel 11, we will see King David. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the man that wrote most of the psalms that we have in our Bible. Let me ask you this. What, what last writing piece did, did you write that made the Bible? You didn't. <laughs> so, but, but David did. So this is a man after God's own heart, wrote part of the Bible. He never retaliated against King Saul who tried to kill him. He is a man that took out Goliath and beat him because he knew that the Lord was working in and through him. But it will be this David that, that fell miserably because he had no guardrails. Because he had no Guardrails. So, so, here's the main point we'll tease out this morning. So, if you're ready for the main point, just say, you are ready? Here it is. Very simple. Very simple. Here it is. Guardrails prevent our lives from going off the rails. There, that, that's it. Not, not very deep, but guardrails prevent our lives from going off the rails. So, so, with that in mind, will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Second Samuel 11, we'll re- read the first five verses. So in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David, so King David, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained. Where did David remain? Sucker should have been out fighting battles. No, he's eating bonbons in the palace. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around in his PJs on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. This woman was very what? Beautiful. And it couldn't just stop there because David sent someone to find out about her. Who is this beautiful woman? The man came back and said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, what'd she say? It's a bad transition. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be glorified here this this morning. Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts through the preaching of your word that would go to work bringing conviction and clarity even in our life where we need guardrails to prevent bad transitions from even occurring. And we pray this all in the name of our King, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So preventing bad transitions. How could... David had done it differently. Well, he could have had six guardrails in his life based upon this passage, and we'll just walk through them one by one. Guardrail number one, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. In other words, be where you are supposed to be, doing what you are supposed to be, doing. See, we read in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David didn't. He sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and he stayed back in Jerusalem. He should have been on the battlefield, but yet he is in the palace. He was not where he was supposed to be. Here's the thing. If you're not going to engage in the battles the Lord has called you to, you're likely to lose the war in your soul. See, see, David's not where the Lord would have him, where he's supposed to be. He's back at home. He was out of position. Here's a principle worth noting. Ready position prevents bad transitions. A ready position prevents bad transitions. Any, any sports people out here? Where, where are my sports people at? All right, I, I love sports. Now, I'm sure you some musical people out here, I'll get to you in a second, but I'm going to talk about sports here for just a second. Growing up, I played baseball, I played basketball, played golf, and I remember growing up learning these sports, and particularly like baseball. I I was a shortstop, and I played second base as well, and one of the things that they teach you about ready position is that you you, you bend your knees, you get your butt down, and your butt out, and you're ready, and you, you put your glove out. And one of the things that they tell you is that when the pitcher is winding up in the infield, you're slowly, as he's winding up, you're slowly inching your way towards home plate in ready position. That's it. So that when the ball comes to you, you're ready. You're ready to scoop it up, and now you're ready to throw it to first base. I know some of you are really impressed that I look that good doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what's so funny is that as I now have grown older and I have kids and well, we go to the ball field, I, I always love watching these like five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and now these 10-year-olds, particularly my Luke, my 10-year-old, when he's playing first base, we're like, and Joni's usually the one yelling at him, Luke, get ready! And, and Luke's like this. <laughs> he, he's, not, he's, not in re- he's not in ready position. Butt, butt down, butt out, hand out, you're ready. He's not in ready position. Now in the outfield, I played center field in high school, and one of the things that they tell you about ready position is not not only are you ready, but when the ball is hit and it is hit in the air, what's the first move an outfielder should make? Anybody know? Back, yes, you go back. Why? Because if you go if you go forward, your momentum is taking you there, and it might go over your head. So, ready position is extremely important if you're going to maximize the potential of a good play. Now, my musical people. Now, I don't I, I don't know much about music. I have a little bit of knowledge because my mom forced me. Let me have a little counseling session right here. My mom forced me to to practice piano or to play the piano from the time I was 6 until the time I was 15. And so I don't know very much about piano. I don't know much about musical instruments. But here's what I think I know is that if you want to play a musical instrument, especially a flute or maybe a violin, you need to have it in the right position. Like, I've never tried to play a flute before, but I bet you if you don't have it in the right position, you don't maximize the music that would come out of that flute. Why? Because ready position means everything in execution. Listen, when it comes to our life, if we are not in the proper position, if we're not in ready position, if we're not staying in our lane, then we maximize our potential of failing. Just like David and so, how how can you how can you make sure that you stay in your lane in areas of life? Well, I, I actually have a couple of application points here. Is that you, you might need to download the app Life 360. You say, what's that? It's a stalking app. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, because I, I could be at Top Golf and my wife texts me like, and, and this was so funny because while uh, you, you know I, I came down here first and then the family was finishing school and then I, sometimes I would get these texts from my wife like, why are you at Top Golf? And I'm like. What do you mean I'm like, are you stalking me, woman? And she's like, yeah, I live 360 you. And I'm like, okay, okay, yeah. And then there are times where I'll go to Home Depot because it seems like that's where I spend my time these days. I don't know really much about Home Depot other than it's a place where you buy tools and stuff. But... My wife will text me like, what did you buy for $125? I'm like, well, you know, are you stalking me? And here's the thing. It's these apps where she now has this alert that somebody's just used our bank card. Like, these are things that alert her to what I am doing or even what our kids are doing. Sometimes we're, you know, texting our kids, you know, uh, we didn't say you could go here. Why are you here? So you might need to download the Life360 app. You You might need to download a filter for your internet so that you're not wandering aimlessly on the internet. It could be looking at things that you don't need to look at, or it could be buying things that you don't need to buy. I know Amazon Prime is, is coming up. It's like Prime Day. I'm guilty of it, too. But, but you, might, you might need a budget to keep you in your lane. Just saying. But you need to stay in your lane. That's a guardrail. Guardrail number one. Guardrail number two. Protect your time. Everybody say, protect your time. Protect your time. You've got to refrain from idleness and laziness. So, the story continues. One evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace. This is not the middle of the night. This is late afternoon, early evening, maybe 5 p.m., maybe 6 p.m. The sucker is in his PJs, wandering on the roof. Well, what's David doing? I mean, it's, it's not like he's been tired from fighting battles. I mean, it's been the winter. So they, they've been hanging. He's been hanging out at his palace. Uh, he has plenty. He has had plenty of rest. He should be on the battlefield. He's not. He's literally taking naps in the afternoon and walking on the roof in late afternoon, just doing nothing. So, so what, what, what's going on? He is being lazy and he's being idle. Well, Josh, what's laziness and idleness? I'm glad that you asked this morning. That's a really great question. Here's what laziness and idleness is. Laziness is refraining from any activity, that's David, sleeping all day long, Maybe he's going through a midlife crisis because people would say he's around 50 years old. Maybe he's going through his midlife crisis and he doesn't have a camel to buy because he has every camel. So he, maybe he's just moping around. I, we don't know. But he's refraining from activity. And then idleness is refraining from productivity. So any activity, any productivity, David is in active. Now these two things, I want us to, re, I want us to be reminded that these two things are different than rest. Rest is the intentional resting of your bodies and minds to rejoice in what God has done through your accomplishments, as well as allowing your bodies to recover from the accomplishments and productivity. So it's about rejoicing and recovering your rest. That's not what David is doing. He is lazy and Idle. You see, the Bible promotes rest, but it condemns laziness and idleness. Proverbs 19. Laziness brings on a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. And then Ecclesiastes says this: through laziness the rafters sag, and because of idle hands, the house leaks. In other words, your life falls apart when you are idle and you are lazy. All right, let's have a little fun this morning. All right, so as you know, we have three kids. And we hear this phrase, I mean, so much in a given week I am filling the blank. Yeah, you, got, you guys know it, yeah. <laughs> and our kids, I mean, all, all the time. I mean, they could have just woken up and about 30 minutes later, I'm bored. And then about six hours later, I'm bored. And it's like, I'm bored. I mean, that is the mantra of this generation. I'm bored. And here's what we know as parents, right? And we also know this from our own life. When we are bored, what do we typically get into? The trouble. Yeah, that's it. That's what David. David is... He's leading and posturing himself towards trouble because he is idle and he's lazy. According to one article, easily bored people are at a higher risk for depression, anxiety, drug addiction, alcoholism, compulsive gambling, eating disorders, hostility, anger, poor social skills, bad grades, and low work performance. And let me just go ahead and say, this is not a younger generation, a generational problem. They've learned that behavior somewhere else. Or they've been enabled by an older generation to engage in idleness and laziness. See, idle lives leads to fantasizing minds. Laziness leads to fruitlessness. And boredom leads to irresponsible amusement. And see, and that's, that, that's David. He, he's not protecting his time. Well, here's a rule of thumb. If we want to protect our time and we want to refrain from idleness and laziness and boredom, Joshua, there, are, are there any things that we can do? Is, is there kind of a rule of thumb? Absolutely. And here, here they are. This is straight from me right now. Accomplish abundantly. Accomplish abundantly. When... When you go to work, what are you trying to accomplish? When you come home, when you spend time with your family, what are you trying to accomplish? With your health, what are you trying to accomplish in your health, in your community, in the church? What are we trying to accomplish? And one of the things that we can do is we can begin to think about what are we, through the power of the Spirit living in us, what are we trying to accomplish in all of these spheres that we are occupying? And therefore, we we go into these spheres wanting to accomplish much. Then, the second thing is this, sleep sufficiently. So, accomplish abundantly. Second of all, sleep sufficiently. This is a running theme in my life, sleep. I, 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 like, I, I am very intentional about my sleep. And I've done a lot of research on sleep and and most people, most people need seven to eight hours of sleep at night. Because here's the thing, if you are mentally and physically tired, then what you're, you're going to find yourself vulnerable to temptation. So you need to accomplish abundantly, you need to sleep sufficiently, you need to rest regularly. That's Sabbath. You need to have one day where you are resting physically, emotionally, and mentally, and that you are attuning your heart to King Jesus. You need to rest regularly. And then fourth, you need to leisure little. Well, what's leisure little, Josh? What does that mean? It means stop binge-watching every single weekend on Netflix or Hulu or Disney+. Plus. It means stop sitting there at night just leisuring all the time, just scrolling through Amazon Prime. I mean, seriously, stop scrolling. Stop getting up in the middle of the night because you can't sleep and just wandering aimlessly where you don't need to be. Leisure little because if you leisure much, it will lead you down to the road of destruction and trouble. Anybody okay? All right, good, all right. All right, so we got two guardrails down. We got we got more to go. Here's guardrail number three. Take your thoughts captive. Take your thoughts captive. All right, we continue to read from the as he's in his PJs, si- sipping on you know whatever he was sipping on. there. he's scan he's scanning the kingdom because he's on he's you know on the palace roof, so he sees everything. So he's scanning, 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 and he and he sees a woman bathing, and this woman is. Whoa, very beautiful. Oh, man. And so David, he wants to know who this woman is because she's very beautiful. So he sent someone to find out about her. So they find out about her. They come back, and they say, "Uh, David, uh, this is Bathsheba. Uh, She's married. You know know both her dad. You also know both her husband. Now, here's the thing. He never, he never allows the Lord to police his thoughts. Now, there is a speed limit sign in Winter Springs that I just don't like. I'm going to petition to have it removed. <laughs> no, I'm not. So, but I don't like it, though. And here's the reason why I don't like it is because every time I drive by it, it always, it always gives me a, a sad face. So, <laughs> you've probably seen It's not this one, but it's one like this. So it's a speed limit sign that says 30 miles per hour. And the reason why I don't like it is I could be driving 31 and it gives me a sad face sign. And I'm like, well, what are you don't know, oh, I want at least a straight face sign because where I come from going one mile and over the speed limit is pretty good. Isn't it? I don't want no sad face. And it's, it's so funny. I'd be going 20. Like, here's the thing. It's not, it's not giving me a sad face if I'm going 25 miles an hour. You know, because that's five miles under, and I know somebody's not happy behind me. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, you just can't win for this, you know, speed limit sign. What is it doing? It is policing my driving. Let me ask you this. Who's policing your living? Who's policing your thoughts? Because here David fails to allow God to police his thinking, but, but here's what he has written prior to this season of his life. He's written Psalm 19, 13 through 14. Here's what he wrote. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. He's penned those words. Yet here, he's not allowing God to police his mind and his thoughts. We need the Lord to police our thoughts so that we might take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. So how do you, how, how do you take your thoughts captive? I'm glad that you asked that question. Here's how. Here's just a little framework that I created for us. Number one, arm... Yourself with the knowledge of what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. See, I I think for I think for many people we don't really know even what what is in bounds, what is out of bounds. Well, how do we know? We gotta get in the word. We we gotta read the word, we gotta study the word, we we gotta sit under the the teaching and the preaching of the word. We've got to arm ourselves what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. And then we need to acknowledge and abandon. Well, what does that mean, Joshua? We need to acknowledge what is good. And then we need to abandon what is bad. You see, here's what David did that was the mistake. So as he's scanning, other than being where he doesn't need to be, but he's scanning, he's scanning the city, he sees this woman, he sees how beautiful she is, and he should have just stopped there. But he didn't stop there. He shouldn't just stop there and acknowledge the beauty of Bathsheba, thanking God for the beautiful creation that he has made in Bathsheba and then abandon the bad desires, the sinful desires that he had about something that was good. And see what we need to do, and, and I understand, like in the church, we're so notorious for saying, no, don't do this, no, don't do this, no, don't go here, no. And, and I, I kind of get that because of the whole guardrail thing. But here's something better that I want us to, to be taught is that we need to acknowledge the good things in creation. We need to abandon the abuse of the good things of creation. So it's like food, it's like drink. Food is good, drink is good. But if you eat too much of it or you drink too much of it, guess what? You abuse the very thing that we've just deemed good. So you need to acknowledge what is good, abandon what is bad. But you only can do that if you arm yourself with what is in bounds and out of bounds. And then you need to ask. You need to ask the Spirit to fill you and empower you to say no to the thoughts that tempt you to go astray. So you need to arm You need to acknowledge and abandon, and then you need to ask the Spirit to empower you to say no so that you can take, so that I can take my thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. David didn't do that. Guardrail number four. This is probably my favorite. Surround yourself with people unafraid to tell you no. Surround yourself with people unafraid to tell you no. So, Verses three and four, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your mighty men, David. And so he should have said, Oh, okay, perfect. I'll leave her alone. But he doesn't. He says, Well, go get her. No one, see, here's the thing David's not thinking. Straight, he's intoxicated with Bathsheba's beauty and is fantasizing about being with her. Uh, just on a side note, never underestimate the lore of temptation. If a man after God's own heart could be intoxicated with someone's beauty who is off limits, listen, we, we all can be intoxicated with something that would be off limits, so so never underestimate the lore of temptation. But, but here. David is wanting to bring her to his house, and no one is there telling David, that's not a good idea. David, she's married. David, she's married to one of your mighty men, one of your most trusted warriors. David, leave her alone. Hey, there's a lot of other women in the city. Hey, we'll, we'll go get in. no one is telling David no. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer he made the observation that when lust takes control Satan does not fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God See 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 David he doesn't hate God he just has forgotten all about God as he is so intoxicated with Bathsheba and when that happened he needed a prophet to speak truth in his life You need a prophet I need a prophet to speak truth in our life, to remind us that this is what God has said and this is who God is and God is near. We need a prophet to bring us back to reality when we are wanting wanting to deviate from the path God has set before us. Uh, For for me, I, I have a prophet And uh, you know her name? Her name is Joni Laxton. And she's told me for, I mean, years. And I'm I'm grateful to God for her. Now, sometimes I, here's the thing. This is why you need people around you. I need people around me unafraid to tell me no. Because it is a big thing to tell the king no. It is a big thing to tell people no. But I need it. And Joni does that. She'll tell me, hey, uh, you you haven't been at home, uh, you you know, as much as you need to be. Hey, we need you. So whatever you need to do to, you know, rearrange your schedule, you, you need to be home. Uh, she, she's told me that. Uh, she'll, she'll tell me, hey, you need to watch out for that person. Hey, you, you hey, you need to, hey, don't why are you thinking that way? And so she'll tell me, hey, that's crazy thinking. And so there are things that Joni has done in the power of the Spirit to speak life and truth into me as a prophet would. And this is the other thing of why we need the church. Because at the church, and this is another reason why I'll never, I'll never back down from preaching the Bible because you and I, we need the person prophet in our life. And the prophet that we need in our life is King Jesus and the Spirit of God teaching us what we need to be and become. All right, got a little fired up there. Sorry. All right. (laughs) Moving right along. But you you, you need a prophet. It's a guardrail. Guardrail number five is this, be content with what God's already given you. Be content with what God's already given you. All right, so we know that David was a polygamist. You say, what's a polygamist? He had many wives. And then some of you are like, whoa, does does the Bible teach that and promote that? No. It was culturally acceptable at this point, but you will never find a polygamist relationship in the Bible that flourished. They always had issues because God's intent and his design was one man, one woman for life. That's God's design. Not multiple men, not multiple women, no. Like, there's this thing going on in culture now called polyamory. No, one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage for life, that's God's design. And anytime you see people deviating from God's design, it doesn't end well. Now, culturally acceptable, not biblically. But here's what I find interesting. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, so way before Israel would would go into the promised land, conquer all the inhabitants, and really set up shop there and have their first king, here's what Moses wrote. And he, talking about the future kings, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So before Israel was really ever set up as a kingdom where they would have their king... Moses warns from those men acquiring many wives for themselves. But what we read about David, particularly in 2 Samuel 5, is that he took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Here's the principle. Don't miss this, church. If you blatantly disobey God in one area, it's just a matter of time before you do it in another area. And so here David is, he's disregarding things in his life where he should be, but he's not. He should have been doing, but he's not doing. And you see the slippery slope. When you blatantly disobey God in one area, it's just a matter of time before you do it in another area. It's the slippery slope of sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. That's David. Now, why is David? This is why it's, it's a mystery. David, you have everything that you could have ever wanted. You were the runt of the litter. You were the youngest. You were a poor little shepherd boy. God found you in that lot in life, and he has taken you to the palace. He's put you there. You are now the wealthiest, and you're the most powerful man on planet Earth at that time. You have all of these concubines. You have all of these wives. You could have every little toy that you could have ever wanted, but something in you is still discontented. Why? Why? Like why? And, and, and because he's taking his eyes off God. And, and here's the thing about discontentment: discontentment leads to searching. Discontentment leads to discovery because you're trying to discover. You're trying to search for something to make you whole, for something to satisfy you. So something in David's life is not whole. Something in David's life is not satisfied. And so he thinks this, this off-limits woman should be that. Oh, that, that, if I'm with Bathsheba, then that will, that will satisfy me. As, uh, as many of you know, I love the game of golf. Love the game. And I remember growing up, playing golf, I was, pretty, I was pretty good, had a pretty low handicap, and I would, I would come in for, from a bad round, and I would tell my dad, Dad, man, I didn't putt very well. I need a new putter. And we'd go off, and we, we'd go buy a new putter. And then, you know, some weeks go by, and i have another bad round. And i come home, and I'm like, Dad, man, I need some new irons. My irons, I mean, they're just not, they're just not working. And he's like, all right, so what kind, of, what kind of irons you want? I'm like, I don't know, let's just go and find some irons. And so we would go, we find some irons, and I have new irons. That's just the kind of relationship I had with my dad. Lo- Love my dad. Uh, he probably enabled me a little bit too much in that regard because fast forward to when I got married and I started playing golf a lot. I come home and I tell tell uh, Joni, I'm like, babe, I didn't put very good. I need a new putter. She ain't she said, You don't need no new putter? that that profit in her you don't need a new putter I'm like yeah I did I, I had like 32 pots I need a new putter you don't need a putter and I'm like oh okay and so I go I, you know a couple of weeks past playing you know playing golf and have a bad round And come back home and I'm, babe, I'm like babe I, I, I need some new irons my irons are outdated if I got new irons I'd probably hit the ball just a little bit further with a little bit more precision she's like you don't need new clubs I'm like, yes, I do, and here, and this is the prophetic moment in her life, and here's what she said. She's like, "It's not the clubs, it's the clubber." <laughs> Infuriates me when she's right. See, I, I, I was discontent because I thought the new clubs would do it. it it's not the new clubs. Hey, church, please hear me. It's, it's not that man. It's not that woman that's going to bring you satisfaction. It's not that house. It's not that job. It's not the materials. It's not the clothes. It's not the boat. It's not the car. It's not your reputation. Listen, what, what it is is Jesus. He's the only one that can bring ultimate satisfaction in your life. And if you are not content with who God is and what he's given you and you think it is going to be in something else, that leads to destruction. David would tell us that. Contentment. Here's the principle. Contentment. Contentment is rooted in understanding you have everything in Christ. You have everything. Sir, you have everything. Going off off into another marriage to try to find satisfaction, that's not the answer. The last guardrail is plan ahead, plan ahead. Now this was probably the, the toughest of them all. Think about the ramifications of your sin, not on the pleasures of it. Sin is fun. You're like... I can't believe it, Pastor. Sin is fun. You're like, how do you? And you're like, well, I don't know. Fun. If, you, if you don't think sin is fun, you're probably not doing it right, according to some people. <laughs> sin is fun. The consequences, the ramifications, not so much. And see, David is not thinking about his actions of what will come about. He's living off Impulse. If he would have paused long enough to think about the consequences and potential ramifications of his actions and his sin, he may have stopped. You see, the road that he was going down would lead him to break almost all of the commandments dealing with how you should treat one another. He committed adultery, he lied, he covered it up. You know, so bore false witness. He murdered. Not only, not only did he murder Uriah, but he also had other people murdered because of how the plan went about to kill Uriah. And all of these were the byproduct of him breaking the first commandment because David elevated his desires to the position of God. That's who, that's who he worshiped, his desires and what he wanted, not who God was and what he wanted. And these sins, don't miss this, these sins would begin the downturn of his life, his family, and his reign. Because of these sins, the baby that he's going to have with Bathsheba, the baby would die. Tamar, his daughter, would be raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Amnon would be murdered by Absalom. And Absalom would eventually want his father's throne. And David could not be a moral compass in his family's life anymore because he'd lost it. So so he's not even pausing long enough. And I know this is hard because in the moment we are acting under impulse, but if he would just have taken a step back and he would have projected and planned ahead in his mind, he could have began to see maybe some possible ramifications for his sin. Will you pause long enough, like David should have done, to ask yourself questions like, is this behavior worth it? What, What will I lose if I get caught? What will be the possible repercussions? Will this lead down to a slippery slope of more sinful actions? You need to pause. I need to pause in those moments where we are tempted and we need to ask the Spirit to give us some projections about where will this lead me? How will this affect those that I love Now, some of you, you know, you're listening to this, and maybe you're even online, and you're thinking, man, this guardrail stuff is so impractical, it's crazy, it's inconvenient. Here's the principle. I would rather guard my life rather than gamble with my life. And see, what David is doing, he is gambling with his life with no guardrails. That's why you and I, we need guardrails to prevent our lives from going off the rails. Let's pray. Father, we do need guardrails, and we need your Spirit to give us clarity and conviction of where we need guardrails to prevent our lives from going off the rails. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to transition we're going to do something that I hope will be very meaningful to you and and symbolic. Up here, we have five stations, and each station has a Bible, and it has a bowl of water. And what I want to do here in the next few moments after I pray is I want every believer, I'm going to encourage every believer to come up here and to have water sprinkled on their forehead based upon the word. You say, Joshua, where does that even come from and why would we do it? Ephesians five twenty six talks about how Jesus loved the church and that he gave himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word. So this is not a baptism act. This is a symbolic act of where we want the Word of God to pour over our lives and to purify our lives. And so as you come forward and as you have water sprinkled on you from the Word, I want you to just be reminded of how the the Lord Himself is washing us and cleansing us and purifying us, making us more like Him. And as you you undergo this symbolic act, I, I want you to even be praying how can, how can I establish some guardrails in my life that will allow and, and, and help support what the Lord is doing in my life of purifying me, of conforming me more into his image? So I want everyone to do that. But maybe there's somebody here, you are a believer, but you fail tremendously and you've You've never felt the cleansing power of Jesus come over you. Like David, he fell miserably. He sinned, he sinned monumentally. And what this symbolic act will do to you, hopefully, is to remind you that the Lord is creating in you a clean heart. And he's renewing a right spirit within you through the washing of the water through the word. Father, I pray that this would be a sacred time where just this symbolic act of having water sprinkled over us would give us the glimpse of how your word, through the preaching of your word, through the reading of your word, through the teaching of your word, your word is going to work purifying us because you have loved us and you've given yourself up for us. For it's in your name we pray, amen. So we'll have people up here. In the front, so when you are ready, you come forward and be washed with water by the word.